You know, we live in a planet of searchers. Millions have been marching and counter-marching across this planet for millenniums looking for things, looking for meaning, looking for purpose, looking for riches, looking for joy, looking for satisfaction. History and literature are filled with people who are searchers. Sir Galahad searching for the the, uh, Holy Grail. Uh, Coronada searching for the seven cities of Cibola. Ponce de Leon searching for the fountain of youth. None of them found that. But they were searchers. And so are you. So So am I. What are you looking for today? Down deep inside, moving past the tangible and the physical, the material things in life, Way down deep inside, underneath your left shirt pocket, what do you need? What do you want? Well, I think that to begin with, if we're going to find a solution to the deepest needs of our spirits, we need a guide. We need someone to show us direction. Because you see, if we're left up to our own, like if we're out in the wilderness and we don't have a compass and we don't have any landmarks and we don't have a map, it is, un, it is known that a person will travel in circles. Like a dog chasing his tail, they will travel in circles. And that will happen to any of us who do not have a guide, who do not have direction, who do not have a map that will give us direction. The Bible says this God is our God and he will be our guide even unto death. Psalm 48, 14. This God is our God and he will be our guide even unto death. Jesus said in the sixth chapter of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, the 33rd verse, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all of these things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God. What does that mean? That means making God the king of your life. That's what the kingdom of God means. It means to ask the king of kings to be the king of my life. The king of my desires. My profession. My relationships. My practice. My morals. Seek first the kingdom of God. I remind you what I talked about a few weeks ago when I quoted uh, Peter Drucker, uh, one of America's greatest sociologists, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, psychologists, uh, evaluator of uh, the society in which we live. He said it wasn't until about 30, 40 years ago that we made priority into a plural. He said priority is not a plural. It is not priorities. You cannot have priorities. You cannot have priorities. You cannot serve God and mammon. You have a priority and then emanating from that single source, that priority, then you categorize the other aspects of your life. But they all emanate from this one priority, God, as the first in your life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. Is God first in your life? Is God the king of your heart and your life? 
Do you ask him every day to direct your mind, to direct your practices, to direct your behavior? Do you ask God to be the king of your behavior, the king of your life, the king? Seek first the kingdom of God, the kingdom of righteousness, and all of these other things will be added unto you. God told Joshua in the first chapter, in the eighth verse, this book shall not depart out of thy mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night that you may do according to all that is written therein. For then you will be prosperous and then you will have good success. You need the kingship of God in your life and you need the word of God in your life to be a light upon your pathway. A light for your feet, a guide for you through life. We need a guide and God has come To be our unfailing God. Which is why Jesus said follow me. Follow me and I will show you the way. Follow me and I will make you. I will make you to be all that you're capable of being. I will make you to be what I have created you to be. And planned for you to be. And then will empower you to be through my spirit's presence within you. Follow me. Put him first. Businessman got off of an airplane in Chicago and rented a car, and he got in the car, and he was in a hurry to find some. He'd never been to Chicago, and he was in a hurry to find uh, downtown Chicago and the address he was looking for. And so he reached over into the glove compartment of the rent car that he had taken and pulled out a map, and he started looking at it, and he couldn't find anything on that map that slightly resembled where he was. So he finally pulled into a service station, went in and said to the attendant, said, man, I am lost. I've never been to Chicago. I got here. I've got this map out of the pocket of the car, and I can't make uh, heads or tails of this thing. Will you please help me find where I am? So the guy spread the map out there on on the counter, and he looked at it, and he said, well, let me tell you, the biggest problem you have is that you're in Chicago, and the map you have is a map of Detroit. Obviously, the man who had rented the car before him had rented it in Detroit, had come to Chicago, dropped it there, and this guy picked it up and he pulled that map out. Well, you're never going to find your way around if you don't get the right map. You can pray, you can search, you can study, but if you do not have a proper guide, you're not going to find your way to your desired designation, which is meaningfulness in this life and heaven in the next. I had a great experience last night. Martha and I and Steve and Debbie, Jesse James Leha and I have become good friends through uh, a good period of time. And he invited me down when he was working out down at the San Fernando gym and, and uh, really want, we, we encouraged him. He said, I want you to pray for me and help me. And he said, I'd like for you to be in, uh, in my locker room and my dressing room before the fight uh, Saturday night to pray for me. So Steve and I went in there last night before he fought for the world championship uh, and uh, against Azuma Nelson. And uh, we had prayer. All of his managers and handlers, there were 10 or 12 of us in there. In fact, he had his, his little boy in there, James II. And uh, we all joined hands and we prayed together. I prayed God would give him strength. God would give him agility. God would give him stamina. And that whatever the outcome would be, that God would use him and protect him in a great way. And so we went out to watch the fight. And uh, now I'm, I, I know this sounds crude and 
and some of you will not approve of this, but I like to watch boxing matches. Uh, I was on a boxing team when I was in the Marine Corps, way back. In fact, I was the only fighter in the Marine Corps that had to be carried both ways. Uh, I was terrified. Really a coward. I had no business being in that thing. Uh, but uh, uh, Jesse James uh, won the fight and won the championship. And he asked me to come back to the dressing room after the fight and went back. He came down the hall and he raised his hands. And this is what he said. God gives us strength. God gives us strength. And uh, during the fight, there were a number of fights, preliminary fights. And, and uh, you've seen, if you've watched them on television or ever been there, Often someone, uh, in fact, in one fight, both men, two fighters, kneeled down in their corner and obviously were praying. And then they made the sign of the cross. Then they got up. Both of them didn't win, of course, but they both prayed before the fight and they both made the sign of the cross. Reminded me of a story of a Catholic priest and a layman who went to see a boxing match. And the, uh, one of the fighters made the sign of the cross before the fight started, obviously as a prayer symbol that he was asking God to help him. And the layman asked the priest, he said, well, uh, will that prayer help him in this fight? And the priest said, certainly it will help him if he knows how to box. <laughs> will, prayer, will prayer help you in school before a test? Certainly, if you studied. Will prayer help you get a good education? Certainly, if you work at it. Will prayer help you get a good job? Yes, if you prepare yourself and then when you get it, you work at it. God cannot do a thing in the world with an immovable object. If you just sit in the corner and pray all the time, you're going to lose the fight because you'll be disqualified because you'll never get out of the corner. God cannot do a thing in the world with an immovable object. If you're not willing to start moving in the direction God is leading you, you're not going to get anywhere. It's it's kind of like riding a bicycle uh, in the dark. I remember when I was young, we used to be able to ride bicycles all over. It was a safer day then. I wish it were the same today. We'd ride bicycles and then we wanted to ride at night. And I remember one of the neatest things you could get. I mean, it was just a, it was the epitome of accomplishment to get a a, a, a light on the front of your bicycle. Do any of you remember having such an experience? Got that light on the front of the bicycle so you could go out and ride at night, you know, and you could see in front of you. You know, doing the will of God is a lot like riding a bicycle at night. You can never ride a bicycle standing still. You can sit there all day long. You read books about it. You can watch other people do it. But until you get on there and start, and you may fall a few times and skin your knees a few times. But uh, men will, as Garrett has said, men will always be making mistakes as long as they're striving after something. You want to learn to ride a bicycle? You start. You want to do the will of God? Start. Start moving in whatever direction the Spirit of God seems to be motivating you. And you know what he'll do? He'll give you some light. Just enough light to see where you're going. He won't give you light all the way home. He won't give you light for 20 miles or 30 miles. Or he won't give you light for 10 years or 20 years. But you start and he'll give you all the light you need to keep moving in the direction he wants you to go. And he will give you direction and he will give you balance. You will live a balanced life if you continue to move in the direction the Spirit of God is leading you. 
So God is going to be our guide and he's going to accompany us. He's going to give us his map. He's going to give us his presence to be with us. And then, then we will have what I suppose everybody in the world wants to have. And that is joy and peace. Joy and peace. Now we could probably list some other things, but I've thought about it a lot and tried to digest it down from looking into my own life and looking into it biographically and then thinking back over conversations I've had with thousands of people over 50 years. What, a, what, what do most of us want? We want joy and we want inner peace. Well, we can't get it without God being king of our lives, putting him first. Remember that you're never going to get going until you get him as your leader and his word as your map. But once you do, joy and peace will come. Let me tell you, if you start out trying to find joy and peace, you'll never get it. Never will you receive it. If that's your main goal, if that's your priority, you'll not get joy and peace. Joy and peace are byproducts They are byproducts, they are consequences to putting God first and doing God's will. I don't know who said it, but it's a great quote. To know the will of God is life's greatest discovery. To do the will of God is life's greatest achievement. And you can know the will of God if you make him the Lord of your life. And he will guide you. He will lead you. And the byproduct of letting God be your Lord, making him the king of your life, the byproduct inevitably will be joy and peace in your life. You'll be, the, you'll be filled with joy. My peace I give you, said Jesus. My joy I give you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. I'll give you peace that passes understanding. A man went to see a doctor one day. It's an old, old story that I heard, I don't know, half a century ago now, I guess. Man went to see a doctor. He said, I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. I don't have any joy in my life. And I need some encouragement, need some direction. The doctor talked to him a little while about some general things. And he said, let me tell you what to do, what to do tonight. I, I think it'll help. You'll kind of pick up your spirit. There's a circus in town. And they've got the funniest clown I've ever seen in my life. I just split my sides laughing watching that clown go through his antics. I want, I want you to go to the circus and see the clown. There was a long pause. The man said... I'm the clown. You can be the life of the party and be dead inside. You can make people laugh and you're crying and dying inside. John Belushi was a great comedian, made millions of people laugh, died of an overdose of heroin and cocaine at 33. Chris Farley made millions of people laugh. Life of the party. Died of an overdose of morphine and cocaine. 33. It will kill you. It will kill you. 
And if you have to, if you have to resort to substitutes to find joy and to find life and to be the life of the party, you can end up just like John Belushi and Chris Farley and millions of others. There is no substitute for the joy of the Lord. None. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't take a substitute. Don't be tempted to take a substitute for joy and for peace. Listen to what Paul wrote in the fourth chapter of Philippians, fourth verse and following. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Here it is. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. Now listen. You will never have the peace of God until you have made peace with God. You will never have the peace of God in your heart until you've made peace with God. I looked again at one of Billy Graham's first books. I think it may have been one of his, his first book. Peace with God. You're never going to have any peace in your life until you first make peace with God. Now, God is not at war with us. God didn't start the fight. God created us for relationship. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Word of God, Old Testament, New Testament, nowhere will you read where God needs to be reconciled to man. Not once. The Bible says man needs to be reconciled to God. We're the ones who decided we could be God better than he. We were the ones who decided we can run the show better than God, just like Adam and Eve decided in the Garden of Eden. And the sons of Adam and Eve through the years, the the children of Adam and Eve, all of us are, we have the same tendency to think, okay, I can do it. I can be my God. I can be the God of my life. We will never have the peace of God until we have made peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he's always inviting us. He's calling us. He's welcoming us. He loves us. And he'll run to meet us if we start moving toward him in a second. If God carried a wallet, he'd have your picture in it. And he'd long for you and look for you every day. You don't have to worry about God being reconciled to you. You don't have to worry about overcoming God's reluctance to forgive you. He's more willing to forgive us than we are willing to ask him to forgive us. And being willing to accept forgiveness. But when that happens, we have the peace of God which passes all understanding. And listen to what it says. And this will guard your hearts and minds. Aren't you glad he put those two words in there? Not only guard your emotions, but guard your attitudes, your heart and your mind, your feeling and your thinking, your emotions and your volition, your choosing. The peace of God will give you peace of heart, 
and peace of mind. Churchill, uh, let me finish reading before I quote Churchill. He continues to say, finally, brothers, whatever is true. uh, Churchill once said, talking about truth, he said, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets its pants on. Uh, I tell you, you, you can watch it in society and in church and in business, anywhere else. Boy, a lie will travel faster than the truth any day in the week. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You see what happens when you get the peace of God in your life? When you get the love of God in your life, when you get the joy of the Lord in your life, do you know what happens? You suddenly become a positive person instead of a negative person. You become positive instead of negative. Churchill made another marvelous quote about, he said, an optimist is someone who sees an opportunity in every problem. A pessimist is someone who sees a problem in every opportunity. Great definition from a great mind. You know, if you go to the desert, there are many birds, but there are two birds specifically that I want to mention about. One is a vulture and the other is a hummingbird. They both live in the desert. And the vulture lives off of the dead, off of the past, off of the, the decaying. A hummingbird lives off of the blossoms of the cacti. Refreshment. One lives off the past. One lives off of the fragrant present. And each bird finds what it's looking for. And so do we. So do we. If you want to look at the trash, if you want to look at the garbage, you say, Bugner, don't you realize there are a lot of bad stuff in the world? Sure, I realize it's there. I realize it's there. I know that it's there. But I don't have to dwell on that. I know there's sewers running underneath the streets of the city, but I don't have to go down there and look at them to know it's there. And I certainly don't have to pipe it into my living room in the name of reality. Positiveness. Whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely, excellent, if anything is praiseworthy, think about such things. What are you looking for? Two men looked out from prison bars. One saw mud, the other saw stars. Which way do you look? You're looking for the mud in people's lives? Or are you looking for the light in other people's lives? Do you spend all the time dwelling on the mud in your own life? Or do you enjoy the light of the Lord in your life that will help you take your mind off of all of that old mud that will be passed away and that is forgiven and has been washed away by the love and the joy of Christ in your life? It's interesting, isn't it? Life is generally directed by what we look at. The direction we look. Well, let me say a final word. I believe that to all receive this, to to know God is our guide, to receive the joy and the peace of the Lord in our heart, which is incomparable, and, uh, and, and is not available anywhere else, really is not available anywhere else. 
It is only the peace of God which passeth all understanding and which will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God and the God of peace. I think the, probably the biggest issue is forgiveness. The longer I study and read and preach, forgiveness and grace, as we so beautifully sang about this morning, uh, forgiveness and grace is the major issue. That's true for all of us. For by grace are we saved. Forgiveness is the key. Jesus said, forgive one another as I have forgiven you. How did he forgive us? He forgave us unconditionally. How are we to forgive? Unconditionally. You say, Buckner, that's hard. I know it's hard. In fact, I know it's impossible without the grace of God and without the love of God and without the God of peace being in our hearts and in our lives. He has forgiven us. He said, now I want you to forgive one another the same way I've forgiven you. He said, also, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will forgive you yours. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly father forgive your trespasses. Does that mean God's a bookkeeper and he's just sitting up there kind of checking things off saying, oh, Buckner, Buckner forgave somebody, so I'll forgive him something over here. And Buckner is working now trying to forgive somebody and at least praying about it and, and uh, dealing with it and at least facing the fact that he needs to get his heart right and he needs forgiveness. But it's not easy to come, but he's, he's working at it and I'll help him and be with him. Yeah, I'll check off one of his sins over here. No, it doesn't work that way at all. What Jesus is saying is here, if we have not experienced his forgiveness, we'll not be able to forgive other people. It's predicated upon experiencing Christ's forgiveness. Now, if we've never experienced Christ's forgiveness, we're not going to forgive anybody else. We're going to carry grudges. We're going to live with them. We're going to feed them. We're going to be like the vulture in the desert. We live on that. Forgiveness, accept forgiveness and forgive one another because forgiving one another is an indication that we have accepted the forgiveness of God. If we don't forgive other people, we haven't accepted God's forgiveness. A remarkable story comes out of World War II. The USS Indianapolis was a heavy cruiser. It was one of the great ships of the Navy and the Pacific Fleet. The USS Indianapolis had a very, very significant secret mission. It left San Francisco with the atomic bombs. And under high secrecy and protection, took those bombs to Tinian, which is right across a, a, a channel from Saipan. And it was from Tinian that they took off in the Enola Gay and others to go bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki. After the Indianapolis had brought that, uh, those instruments to Taiwan, uh, to, uh, Taiwan to, to Tinian, they were going to the Philippines. They were sailing to the Philippines. Just two weeks before the war ended, that ship was torpedoed. And it was one of the greatest 
tragedies in naval history. The USS Indianapolis was hit by two torpedoes. One hit the magazine, which meant that the ship just, all the ammo in the ship just exploded. And one of the survivors said it lifted the ship up out of the water about 10 feet and fell back into the water. 300 men died in the ship. Nearly 600 died in the water. 316 survived. One reason there were so many casualties in the water was because they were missed for five days. For five days, no one missed them. And so here were these men, hundreds of them in the water for five days. Many of them hallucinated. Some thought they saw an island and started swimming toward it. Others would join together in groups of 10 or 12 and hold hands. And the water was clear and they could see 20 feet down into the water and they could see the sharks circling. And then they'd said that all of a sudden one would shoot to the top and grab a man. Hundreds were killed by the sharks. It was a horrible and horrendous event. There was a Marine PFC on board that ship named Giles McCoy. What was a Marine doing on a Navy ship? Well, if you're familiar at all, Marines are stationed on every light cruiser, heavy cruiser, battleship, aircraft carrier in the Navy. There's a contingent of Marines on each one of those ships to do a couple of things. One is for security, and the other is because they do all of the small fire, the, the anti-aircraft fire, all of the, uh, the uh, batteries of small arms fire. And so a number of Marines were on, on the USS Indianapolis. PFC uh, Giles McCoy is now a doctor in Mineral Wells, Texas. He was president of the Indianapolis Survivors Association. They had a reunion in 1990. And the skipper of the Japanese submarine that had sunk the Indianapolis who after the war had become a Shinto priest came to that reunion. And Giles McCoy said that he had been dealing for years with forgiveness against that man. He said it was more difficult for him to forgive the Japanese government for starting World War II said it was difficult for him to forgive the Japanese for the atrocities they committed on prisoners of war and, and civilians in many places. But he said, I made peace with God in my heart about the skipper of the a submarine that killed all of those men, sank that ship. The skipper's name was Hashimoto. And he came to the reunion. And Giles McCoy said to him, I forgive you for sinking the Indianapolis and for the death of hundreds of men. For you were doing for your government what I was doing for mine. He said, I want to thank you for not machine gunning us when we were in the water. For that often happened. Thank you for not machine gunning us. But I forgive you. 
Hashimoto said to him, thank you for forgiving me. And I have come here to pray for you and for the survivors of the Indianapolis and to pray for the souls of all of the hundreds that died. And I've also come here to forgive you. Giles McCoy was no doubt a little surprised. He said, Hashimoto said, the reason I forgive you is because the atomic bombs you delivered to Tinian, the first was dropped on Hiroshima and every member of my family was killed. I forgive you. You forgive me. They embraced. Forgiveness restores broken hearts, broken lives. Forgiveness is the key to the joy and peace which passes all understanding except the joy and the peace of the Lord God and accept his forgiveness forgiving us of all of our sins and God help us to be forgiving people for Jesus sake I'll be here to greet you and welcome you as you come to trust Christ, to rededicate your life, or to be a part of this church, to join this fellowship, to help us be better Christians, better men and women, better young people, more like Christ in our living. Let's stand and sing together God's invitation.